Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi, this is Daniel Karapkin, um, and we are studying Moren Vuchim, the Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. We are on the webyeshiva.org platform, and I'm delighted to welcome you if you're able to watch this today, even though it is Erev Rosh Hashanah, it is the eve of the new year, and I'm sure that many of you are busy, but because we are on the final chapter of the Rambam's Moren Vuchim, uh, section one, the, fir the first third of Moren Vuchim, a little bit more than a third, I thought it would be appropriate, even though it's Erev Chag, the eve of the holiday, to at least uh, let's finish it together. It's not a very long chapter. It should not take us that long to get through it. And this way we will have finished a complete unit of the first section of the Guide for the Perplexed um, uh, uh, before, before the Yom Tovim start. After today, we will be taking a break until after Sukkot, and therefore our next class will be sometime at the end of September. Um, I'm going to um, share with you my screen in just a moment, um, but just let's get our bearing as to where we are. The, there's something unique about the final chapters of the first section of Moren Nevuchim, chapter 69 through 76. These several chapters really were dedicated to the Rambam trying to explain his theological opponent's position. Um, in order to be able to arrive at truth, it is sometimes necessary to present the alternate, the alternative position, explain why you understand it, and why it's incorrect before going on in, to the correct approach. And this is the methodology that the Rambam uh, uh, uses in order to uh, explain his disputation with a group of scholars that he groups together. They are uh, Muslim. Uh, Jewish and Christian scholars together, he groups them as the Midabrim, or the Mutakalimun, which basically means a certain group of religious philosophers who take a certain approach to understanding reality and our, our ability to uh, connect with God through that understanding of reality. That's the Rambam's project as well, but he is an Aristotelian and therefore has a completely different way of understanding reality. But before he can explain to you what his approach is, which he's going to do in the next section of Moren Nevuchim. He feels it's vital for us to understand the alternative approach and understand why it doesn't work. So in chapter 73, which we had spent a very, very large amount of time, we had a, the Rambam had detailed the 12 premises, the 12 theological or philosophical premises of the Mutakalimun. And then he set out to show how these 12 premises form the foundation of the various proofs that the Mutakalimun set out to, to demonstrate. And these proofs wish to prove the following four things. Number one, that God is an existent being, God exists. 
Number two, that God is completely unitary. And number three, God is completely in, incorporeal. That means does not have any physical form. And finally, even though the Rambam had approached this item first, that the world was created at some point in time instead of having existed eternally, which is the Aristotelian model. And so the Rambam uh, uh, basically detailed, after listing the 12 premises of the Mutakalimun, explained, de dedicated a chapter to explaining why their proofs for creation and a creator are incorrect. Then he detailed why their proofs for um, a, uh, uh, a unitary God are completely incorrect. And now finally in chapter 76, he's going to explain why their proofs for a, an incorporeal God are also incorrect. But first he has to explain to us what their primary proofs are. And the Rambam devotes this chapter to explaining what their proofs are and the refutations of those proofs. And it's at this point that I'm going to share my screen with you to give you a very brief synopsis perhaps not so brief, but a, a, brief enough of a synopsis for us to understand where the Rambam is coming from. So in his introduction to this chapter, the Rambam writes as follows. The arguments of the Mutakalimun are primarily to link God's necessary unity to his necessary incorporeality. In other words, once I've proven to you that God is completely unitary and does not have any kind of compound or multiple constructs within him, then it is necessary to also, or by extension, logically conclude that God is incorporeal. But the Rambam says that that's a, not a necessarily correct um, logical connection between one and the other. Just because God is absolutely one does not necessarily lead us to conclude that God is incorporeal. If you believe in the atomic system that the Mutakalimun subscribe to, that is, they believe that the entire universe, everything that exists is comprised of very, very tiny atomic units, atoms. So then it makes sense to suggest that if God is completely unitary, then he must be incorporeal because um, as we've explained, if everything that's physical is comprised of multiple atoms, God cannot be comprised of multiplicity. But we have already rejected that, says the Raman. We've already demonstrated that to believe in a world that is completely atomic in the way that the Mutakalimun describe, we have already demonstrated using philosophical proofs that that is incorrect. But on the other hand, if one argues as we will later on in section two, chapter one, that all corporeal objects are comprised of what Aristotle called matter and form, that there, everything is a composite of raw matter and the form of, or the, really form means the shape or the the way that this thing is constructed, and those two things together comprise all of reality, and then we would have to conclude that if God were corporeal, if God were physical, he would be comprised of both matter and form. And as I will argue, as I will demonstrate later on, it is impossible to ascribe a unitary God with the attributes of both matter and form. You're ascribing God as a compound being, and that's impossible. So while I certainly respect the idea, says the Rambam, that once you prove that um, uh, uh, once you prove that it, in order for God to be comprised of multiple components, 
that would be the only way that he could be physical. And therefore, since God is not comprised of multiple components, he cannot be physical. But the way that the Mutakalimun go about doing that is inaccurate because they don't have a correct depiction of the physical world. Okay, that's his introduction. And now let's go into the three proofs. The first proof is that God cannot be atomic, that he sort of introduced us to this idea in his introduction. And the argument is very simple. If God is corporeal, then he is comprised of multiple atoms. And now the question is, which atom in this physical structure that is comprised of multiple atoms, which atom is God himself? Are all the atoms God? Or is just one atom out of, let's say, a million atoms God? And if we wish to confine God to one atom, one unitary atom, what, what is the function of all of the other atoms in this divine body, in this divine physical being? And if all the atoms are God, then there is not one God, but there are multiple gods because each atom is disparate and discrete and separate from the other atom. And therefore, you would have to conclude a polytheistic uh, theology instead of a monotheistic theology. So by virtue of the fact that we believe that everything that is physical is atomic in nature, is comprised of atoms, it is impossible for God to assume a physical form, a, corpor a corporeal form. And the Rambam's refutation of that, as he had expressed very briefly in the introduction, is that this argument is predicated upon the atomic theory of the Mutakalimun, but we who reject this theory could argue that God is a body that is non-atomic, but is rather one monolithic indivisible mass. Just because we can imagine a mass being divided does not mean that such an image could apply in reality to a divine mass. And here the Rambam is taking another knock against the 10th premise of the Mutakalimun who had suggested that anything that I can imagine in my mind can find its place in reality. And it was based on that argument that they wished to uh, they wished to argue that anything can change, any miracle is possible. But at the same time, that argument would also suggest that any physical object that I can imagine being divided in half is divisible. But the Rambam says the imagination faculty is not something that we rely upon. It is not an accurate arbiter of truth. And therefore, even though you could imagine a physical body being divided into, it does not necessarily mean that the body of God, if such a thing could exist, is necessarily divisible. And so therefore, the Rambam is playing, is completely playing devil's advocate throughout this chapter, because as we know from learning the entire first section of Moren Nebuchim, the Rambam's primary forceful argument is that God by necessity is completely non or incorporeal, can never assume a physical form and no physicality is ascribable to God. And if so, he's just playing devil's advocate. He's saying, I, you and I, Mutakalimun, we agree that God is incorporeal, but your argument that based on the fact that the world is atomic proves that God cannot be corporeal, we reject that completely because we do not subscribe to that atomic model. Second proof, God cannot resemble his creations. And it goes basically something like this. God cannot resemble his creations, yet God is unique. And this is therefore impossible. In other words, because God is unique, God cannot create something that resembles him. All bodies are essentially the same, comprised of the same uniform atoms. 
And therefore, anything that is part of a physical world is made up of the same atomic structure. Basically, these, you know, just imagine like these little gray or black balls that are grouped together and any kind of unique attributes that would divide a mountain from a river or a red sweater from a black sweater, all of these things are add-ons. These are things that we called accidents in previous chapters. And so therefore, if God is atomic in nature because he's physical, then he is essentially no different from anything that he creates. And you cannot suggest that God's body is essentially different from any of the other created bodies as a result. It is also impossible to suggest that God could create something that is like himself in any way. So number one, God is unique. That's what it means to be a deity, that there is no other, if, you're, if you believe in a monolithic, a monotheistic God, then there is nothing other than God that is like God. And furthermore, it's logically impossible for God to create something that is like himself in any way, just like, just like we, the Rambam had acknowledged that God cannot create a duplicate of himself. And because of that, it is impossible for God to be physical because if God were physical, then it would turn out that his creations are no different from himself. And that's a logical impossibility. The refutation of this second proof, the Rambam provides two arguments. We have two refutations. Number one, on what basis is it impossible for God to resemble in any way one of his creations? Perhaps God does not resemble his other creations in certain aspects, but does resemble his creations in other aspects. If you argue that it is based on scriptural authority, basically maybe you'll say, well, it's impossible for God to resemble his creations because I have scripture that says that God is not to whom may you compare me, says the Lord, as the, as the prophet says. But if you're going to rely on that, you have departed from the philosophical method of using logical argumentation and are instead relying on the authority of scripture. And that's not a philosophical argument, that's a religious argument. And we are talking philosophy here, not basing ourselves on the authority of scripture. Furthermore, on what basis cannot God something like him, cannot God create something like himself, provided that it is not completely like himself? Thus, corporeality is not impossible. Maybe God could create something that is like himself, as long as it's not 100% like himself. And so therefore, just because, even if we were to argue that God is corporeal, that is not a logical impossibility. That's argument number one. Um, there is no basis for you to say that God, it's impossible, logically impossible for God to create something that somewhat resembles himself because God would be corporeal and so would be his creations. Argument number two, there are terms like the word body, a physical body, which can be understood equivocally, which means that depending upon the context, they mean the word can mean different things. We've seen the Rambam use this kind of wordplay in the entire first part of the first section of Moreh Nebuchim, where he would basically tell us that words like sitting or standing or moving are used in one way when describing physical organisms and in a completely different way when describing God depending upon what is being described. For example, we describe earthly substances as being comprised of matter and form, and the heavens being comprised of, of sorry, some, some typos because I was tired last night, and the heavens being comprised of matter and form. But the matter and form of earthly things are completely dissimilar from the matter and form of heavenly things. Similarly, 
God might possess a body that is completely different in its makeup from any other kind of body, thus leaving God unique, yet still possessing a body. Because we do not subscribe to the uniform atomic theory of the Mutakalimun, we are free to make this argument. There is not just one element, which is, which is those black atoms. It's very, very possible that there are different kinds of physical structures, different kinds of physical bodies. And so just because you suggest that it is impossible for God to create something that is resemblant to himself, that does not prove that God is not a body, because maybe God's body is completely different from the all other kinds of bodies that are created. Even within ethereal and heavenly creations, we acknowledge that not all bodies are the same, that there is a different stuff that makes up earthly material from the, from the stuff that makes up heavenly material. And since we can demonstrate that the stuff that makes up things on this earth are different from the stuff that make up the heavens, what's wrong with saying that the stuff, the physical stuff that makes up God is different from the physical stuff that makes up his creations? Such And we, we do this even within ethereal and heavenly creations. We acknowledge that not all bodies are the same, such as the Shekhinah, which the Rambam had said previously in the first section, is a created essence that represents God on a physical plane, but that is a different kind of stuff. It's a different kind of body than the heavenly spheres, the stars and the cloud, even and the cloud pillar, which are all different kinds of manifestations, but nonetheless are made up of different kinds of physical material. So too, God's body might be of a different nature from all other bodies. And therefore, it's not a logical impossibility that if God were a body that he uh, could not create, that he could uh, create other physical bodies because the word body means different things depending upon the context. So essentially the first argument of the Rambam was that it, even if God were a body, he could create other things, creations that contain the same physical material as long as there is sufficient dissimilarity between God and his creations on a different plane, not necessarily being one being one possessing physicality and the other one being devoid of it, but some other dissimilarity would be would be possible. The second argument is the word body means different things. In other words, the physical nature of God could be completely different from the physical nature of his creations. And so therefore, based on these two arguments, the Rambam says your second proof is refuted just because God cannot resemble his creations, which I agree to, does not mean that God is incorporeal. It's completely possible using the devil's advocate argument that God could be corporeal and still be completely dissimilar from his creations. And finally, the third are the third proof that the Mutakalimun wished to put forth is God's corporeality necessitates particularization. Now we had seen this word particularization in the last chapter where we talked about the proofs that the Mutakalimun wished to bring to the fact, uh, or actually in chapter 74, forgive me, we saw this argument of particularization, which essentially says the world has to have been created because we see that things are created one way and not created another way. That's the argument of particularization. If the world was created one way and could easily have been created another way, meaning that we see that certain things like earth fall to the ground, and certain elements that contain fire rise above the ground. So we see that there are laws of physics that dictate how things work. 
but it didn't have to be this way. It could have been another way. The fact that it could have been another way indicates that there is a sentient, willful being who puts creation into motion. And that was the evidence that he wanted to argue, the Mutakalimin wished to argue for the evidence of a creator. When we use that same kind of argument regarding the corporeal nature of God, if God were corporeal, that too would necessitate particularization. And the argument goes something like this. If God is a body, then that body must be of a certain size and shape because anything that is of a physical nature is limited, is conscribed by size and shape. Okay, the fact that therefore if God does have a body, it is one particular size and shape and not another implies that there was a choice made, that there was some kind of sentient being who made a decision that God would be of a particular dimension and shape. This necessitates someone who particularized God's size and shape, implying that God himself was acted upon. And that's a logical impossibility because the very definition of God is that he is the ultimate actor, but is not acted upon. And if God were to assume a physical shape, that would prove that God is acted upon, and therefore he's no longer God. So it's a logical impossibility for God to be physical in any way, because any physical body is acted upon to determine its particular size and shape, its particular physical nature and structure. And because God, by definition, can never be acted upon, God must be incorporeal. Okay, that's the way that the proof goes. And the refutation of this, as the Rambam puts it, is that this is similar to their proof back in chapter 74 for creation, which we have already refuted. They argued, and it's argument number six, the special case of particularization, if you want to go back to your notes. They argued that because the world could just as easily exist as it could not exist, the fact that it was particularized into existence, that, that there must therefore be a sentient being who willed all of creation to come into existence. But if you go back to chapter 74, the Rambam says, we already refuted this by arguing that this can only be argued if creation is a contingent reality, meaning that it's only a possibility. If all of existence could just as easily not exist as exist, then you have proof for a creator. But what if creation is a necessary existence, which means that it could not have just as easily not existed? If it is a necessary reality, then it is not true that it could just as easily exist as not exist. The same could be said about God. If you're going to argue that God is a necessarily existent being, then just because he is of a certain size and shape, this does not indicate that a sentient being deemed it so, but rather that it is possible that God is a necessary being and his particular size and shape are also out of his necessity. So therefore, it's completely possible that God is, of a, is a corporeal being, has a body, and has a unique size and shape that is unique to God. But it doesn't mean necessarily that God was acted upon to choose that particular size and shape, because maybe just as God is a necessary being, his shape and size is also necessary for some mysterious reason that is beyond our comprehension. And therefore, his physicality does not necessarily indicate that he was acted upon. God could be a completely independent non-contingent and necessary being that was never acted upon and yet still possesses a body. And so that is a refutation of argument number three. 
And the Rambam then concludes this chapter by saying as follows. The mutakalimun are like those who jump from the frying pan into the fire. And I've sort of sort of uh, embellished the, the Rambam's language a little bit. He doesn't say from the frying pan into the fire, but rather from the torrid heat into fire. But it's basically, they've, they've tried to ameliorate the situation by putting down their 12 premises in order to be able to explain and prove the basic things that we of a monotheistic faith believe. But they've, they've actually made things worse, is essentially what he's saying. Not only have they not proved creation, but in their efforts to prove, they have negated all perceptible reality and have thus dismantled the very bases for proving God's existence, his unity, and his incorporeality. And basically what the Rambam is suggesting is as follows. If you believe in a steady state creation where nature is a flowing reality from one moment to the next, because the world is non-atomic, the world is based on rules of physics, that there's a nature that flows from one moment to the other, and that there's no, nothing changes upon a whim, then it is possible to apply logic to creation in general and to be able to examine all of reality, all of physical reality, and extrapolate God from that reality. What the Mutakalimun have done is they've actually corrupted that exercise by suggesting that the world is completely not based on any rules of nature whatsoever, and that anything can change at any given moment because reality is constantly being recreated at every given instant, instance. And if that's the case, then you can't really prove anything by extrapolation, by inference, uh, by induction of what you see in the world around you, because nothing is permanent. There's nothing steady about this reality. Everything is ephemeral and constantly changing. So how do you prove anything? So the Mutakalamun have done us a great disservice in their efforts to try and prove for the existence of a creator and for God's unitary na nature and for his incorporeality. Their, their, um, their motives are, are good, and we applaud them for trying to do the right thing, but they've actually ended up going from the frying pan into the fire. Now that we have presented the Mutakalimun view, we will now embark in section two to prove God's existence, his unity, and his incorporeality using Aristotelian logic. There's only one problem with using Aristotelianism, and that is an Aristotelian using Aristotle's own writings concludes that the world has eternally existed if it's a steady state, create, a steady state reality. And so therefore, once we've used Aristotelian philosophy to prove the things that we need to about God, that he exists, that he's unitary and he's incorporeal, we're then going to have to do the major heavy lifting, which is to argue with the Aristotelians themselves, whom we subscribe to, and then come to the conclusion that despite all the Aristotelian logic that I've been relying on to talk about God, I will have to depart from Aristotle on one essential point, and that is I will argue for creation based upon uh, our tradition. And so this is where the Rambam is going to get into some very uh, thorny areas, some, some troubled waters, but that's something that we'll encounter over the next several months when we, when we study section two. So this concludes our complete discussion, I hope. I mean, it's never concluded because we have to say, Hadranalach, we will come back to you, O Maimonides, and really do more justice to this first section. 
we've only spent on average a week or two on every single chapter of the first section of Moren Nevuchim. And certainly if we were to do it more justice, we would have to spend weeks and weeks and weeks on every single chapter and really try to plumb the depths of this very esoteric text. But for the life is short and we need to move forward. And so we will say to the first section of Moren Nevuchim, Hadran Alach, one day we hope to come back to you. And then after the Chagim, we will commence with the second section of Moren Nevuchim. And let me take this opportunity for those who are watching or listening live to wish you a Ketivava Chatima Tova. May you be written inscribed in the Book of Life for the year 5782. Chag Sameach, dear friends, and we'll call it a day.